Welcome to the ISTC monthly podcast where you can hear all about what's going on at the ISTC and in technical communications in the UK and globally. The ISTC is the Institute for Scientific and Technical Communicators and our members work to make scientific and technical information more accessible. I'm Amanda Marr, your host, and I joined the ISTC in 2014 and now work as a freelance technical author. Each month, I plan to bring you interviews with people working in technical communication across a diverse range of industries, as well as all the latest news and events from our profession. This month, I'm talking to Chris Knowles, owner and technical documentation consultant at DocMate, all about being a technical communicator in the oil and gas industry. Based in Scotland, Chris has worked for companies including Chevron and Enquest in many countries from Norway to Libya, producing manuals for subsea control systems, well operations and drilling instructions. Working for OG UK, that's Oil and Gas UK, the leading trade association for the industry, Chris produced the book Britain's Offshore Oil and Gas, which outlines operations in exploration, development, production and decommissioning. Currently working for Bristow Helicopters, he recently joined the ISTC Council in an advisory role. Welcome to the ISTC podcast, Chris. Well, thank you for having me. A little bit of a scary experience, but I'm sure it will all go fine. <laughs> we'll be gentle with you, I promise. I think a good place to start would be if you could give us a picture of what the oil and gas industry is. What does it cover? Well, it covers a whole range of things in all sorts of locations around the world. There are companies from big to small, well-known household corporate names through to SMEs, consultancy companies right across the spectrum. And it's not just about dirty old oil. There's software, documentation, some very fine bits of machinery being made, some of it on a huge scale, pipes which are a meter in diameter, it gives you a scale of some things, systems that are on circuit boards put into containers that are on the seabed, so under high pressure working in very rough environments. So, you know, it's it's a very diverse industry. And then there's, you know, where I'm working at the moment with Bristow Helicopters, there's the logistics side where Bristow are involved in taking crew offshore to the platforms, you know, as part of their rotations. And then, of course, there's the ships that go out there, the supply boats taking everything from baked beans through to huge bits of equipment. It's a huge business, and it covers onshore facilities, offshore facilities, subsea, on the seabed. Between the actual seabed and the water level, there's a whole load of piping Bellicles, yeah. different platforms. There's platforms that people are very familiar with, but there's also things called FPSOs, which are basically just like a big oil tanker that's been converted with a huge universal joint stuck in the bow, and it's moored to the seabed. And, and that's just, a platform. And that's a, a part of a processing platform, yes. There's a huge diversity of techniques, technology, all going on in, in oil and gas. And so what areas of it have you worked in? Well, all sorts. With Bristow, I'm involved with sort of operational procedures. Bristow have been very heavily involved with COVID-19. We've set up a special operation to ferry sick workers back from offshore. We've had to set up a huge operation to do that. They had a, a helicopter on 10 minutes notice to go, which is a huge logistics operation. 
And then you know, I've worked for people like Shell and Chevron producing things with sort of standard operating procedures. Usually, you know, they have a, a volume per system on the platform. So that can cover everything from gas exporting, oil exporting through to produce water, through to control systems, electrical generation, high vac, mm-hmm. you know, heating, ventilating, air conditioning, through to you know, I produced a construction manual for a small ROV, you know, remotely operated vehicle, which was like the size of a, a briefcase. And it was on an umbilical and I got hold of it to play with and took it to a swimming pool and threw it in the pool and you controlled it with a joystick. Oh, excellent. And so you sort of flew it around the inside of the swimming pool and it had a camera and you could record. And I was writing this instruction manual, which covered the operation of it. Yeah. And then through to the maintenance side, which was stripping it down, taking components off. And to do all that, I had it to play with. Well, well, of course, I wasn't really playing, but, <laughs> uh, you know, I was kind of, a, when you uh, I was working, with. seriously. We like it when we give it to play with. You know, then I sat and worked with a technician who took it to pieces and reassembled yeah. it. And I took photographs. I worked for Caverna Subsea Systems, and they produce control systems that are used to control the wells, the yeah. subsea wells. And to do that, they have what's called a master control station, which is really just like a, a large big metal cabinet with a couple of monitors on it and two very large high capacity computers in there and a very big modem unit. And for that installation, I produced a, a hardware manual, but also a user guide for the software. There's a software called Smax 5, it was oh. called then, you know, which ran the system. And with the, you had the two computers, one to provide a, the main and the standby. And that's connected by an umbilical to a subsea control module. And that was bolted to a, a unit on the seabed. And from there, umbilicals ran to the subsea wells. And so from this control panel, things operated automatically, but you could manually override it and control things. So, so there was the sort of software element and the user interface. And then there's the, the hardware of the cabinet. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and all that meant working with the engineers sort of the test departments because you know it's part of the commissioning of this kind of equipment they do a, a functional design test so you know the test department could give you quite a lot of good information and through to doing the work for the oil and gas uk and working with subject matter expert we mentioned britain of offshore oil and gas that was working with various sort of contributors and making sure that it was consistent etc but I also helped produce for the OG UK guidance documents for a blowout preventer BOP, which is a big, basically a huge, big safety valve put onto the well, and it just stops blowouts. Hence the name <laughs> blowout preventer. Now, you can know. you explain what's a blowout? Well, you don't really want to know. That's basically when the well blows out and you get oh. oil gushing out. Yeah, so that's why there's an oil spill blowout preventer. You really don't want it to happen. Wow. And a whole load of subject matter experts from different companies formed a committee to form a specification of what would be the ideal BOP. As a result of that, we created this guidance document. So that was so that you know, there could be almost like a specification that could be used by industry to create a level playing field for tenders and things like that. Ah, right. Yeah. So that's kind of saying what the standard needs to be. Yeah, because there was lots of diverse opinions of what was required. And I think the big companies were finding it quite hard to get a fair tender. So they, they used the OG UK to create this kind of guidance document. I've always imagined that oil and gas industry working means that you're standing on a platform in the middle of the North Sea with a storm blowing round you and waves crashing. 
and you're trying to work out how you do instructions for a lever going clockwise or anti-clockwise or whatever. Have you ever had to do that kind of thing or have you been in a nice plush office? Well, generally, I've been in quite a nice plush office. I, I have been <laughs> offshore. I've actually only been offshore on one occasion. Um, that was to one of the Chevron platforms. You know, I have done other work. I worked for um, Rockwell Automation, which they produce the control systems. And it's a really interesting thing. They were actually doing the control system on a diving support vessel. Now, these are the vessels where divers go and live on whilst they go offshore and they have decompression chambers on these vessels basically they big oval canisters but they live and breathe in in them but there's interconnections between them all the way to the where they go into the sort of the diving bell to go down to the seabed and it's it was all controlled now up to the point of this particular project it all would have been very bells and whistles, you know, big brass gauges, big valves where people used to turn the valves. And they were going completely to a a system controlled effectively by a mouse. Yeah, you know, very yeah. different. So it was a real step change in the technology, the engineering, etc. And I, I went to the vessel, which was up in um, Inverness, and there's a master control room, but they have little HDMI panels, you know, the human interface panels yeah. dotted all around but everything was controlled through the system even the toilets in the uh in the decompression chambers really yeah <laughs> if they went wrong they could cause a little bit of agony exactly yeah exactly that would not be sorry hold you it we've got to do a system upgrade <laughs> yes, yes you can't go at this moment in time because there's a system upgrade <laughs> <laughs> you really wouldn't want the old blue screen of death at that point, would you? <laughs> at you that point, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> not good, not good at all. When it comes to being a technical communicator, one of the key things that we do is we have to think about who our audience is. So mm. who has your audience been? Well, they go from very clever people, because there's a lot of very clever engineers, through to the technicians and laborers on the platforms there is a bit of a kind of an attitude of well we've always done it this way we know how this is done we don't ever read the manual which is often very common yeah but an an unfortunate kind of attitude yeah through to apprentices who need the reference and need the information yeah like many industries they need the documentation in place so that the companies are effectively covered yeah there are procedures to be followed Yes, exactly. And and there is also some documentation that's done by the oil companies to meet regulatory requirements. You know, one yeah. of the big ones is safety cases. You know, you hear about safety cases in the rail industry, but, you know, they, I think it really started is with the oil and gas industry. Can you explain um, what a safety case is? It's really just explaining to the authorities how the company will manage the safety of that operation, what the governance will be who is responsible the hierarchy of authority to to make decisions what facilities are put in place to protect the safety of people in these environments they have emergency life rafts which i don't know if you've ever seen photos of them but they're all angled at a sort of like 45 degrees they're mounted on these kind of sleds and you know they're designed that when they're released because of their angle they fly out off the platform with such speed that they actually kind of pierce and go underwater and oh. then bob to the surface. But because they've got so much momentum built up, it carries them something like 100 metres clear of the platform. 
Ah, so it gets it away from the platform. You know, so it gets them away from the platform if, you know, there's, if they're having to evacuate. Yeah. So all of these things have to be documented that, you know, this is how it's been designed. Sometimes there are a breakdown of safety cases into sort of design safety cases and operational design is more the sort of concept of the theory. Mm -hmm. We're using this material because it won't melt. Yeah. Whilst the operational is more about how things will be operated and the concepts and how many backups do we have. But generally, safety cases, you know, are a very important document. They have to be approved by the HSE. They have to be reviewed and amended on a fixed term, but also if there's any major sort of design changes made. And another document that I've got involved in is called a stage gate process. Oh, yes. The major sort of companies use these stage gate processes. The most common one is uh, what's called a development stage gate process. They use these basically when they're going to spend money. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. And it could be just for brand new facility or it could be just for adding another well to an existing facility. Yeah. But they go through this stage gate process where they have a project has to meet certain criteria before they go through to the next stage. And that's oh, why it's stage, yes. Know, once we've done this bit, then we can move to the next stage and then, yes. And they have sort of like, you know, concept, define, approve, commission, and then operate, you know, in stages like that, a a stage gate goes through. And that is documented with procedures and what the minimum requirements are, and they're not always totally rigid. And they have built into this things like the final decision to, to finance project. Whether it's viable and... And they also look at, you know, in part of these development processes, they look at concept. What's the best way to get this oil? Uh, Given that it's such a complex industry, do you have any um, standards that you have to adhere to when you're writing? No, no, there isn't. And and I have to say that with all the money that's spent in the oil industry, very little is really spent on documentation. And I'd actually be quite sort of surprised and disappointed by how poor the documentation can be. You know, I can tell stories and I don't want to name names of companies, but, you know, I've, <laughs> I've, I've seen shocking examples of documentation. There's been startup procedures, but no shutdown procedures. So, you know, you could start up with equipment, but you can't shut it down. Oh, you know, that's clever. To the book. You know, things like that. You know, <laughs> nearly every facility is different. You know, there's no such thing as a common platform. So everyone is very individual. Oh, so every set of documentation is bespoke, really. It is really, yes. You know, you you could, if you got yourself organised, find similarities. The Chevrons and the BPs of the world probably have enough facilities dotted around where they could say, well, a system on a platform is similar and we've got certain bits of equipment and we could organise things and we could maybe reuse content and things like that. But they don't do that. They just generally sort of you know start yeah. again almost so there's no standards you know there's nothing clever like simplified english used shell or chevron i think if they would have their own standard of how they want their documentation written you know i've, I've often gone into companies and said okay where's your templates and sometimes i've been given a template that document control is produced but usually it's not really been in my view fit for purpose it's usually been how can i say very weak yeah. But you ask them and things like style guides or anything like that. No, you know, sort of think, <laughs> oh, yeah, we've got this style guide. But again, when you look at it, it's kind of like it's a half-hearted yeah, attempt. Very it's, basic. It's very basic. Unfortunately, they don't look at being clever with different software. Usually everybody in these companies gets the Microsoft suite. Documentation yeah. is generally produced in Word. 
you know, ah, uh, you're not using content management systems or anything like that. No content management system. No. Generally, yes. I would say 99% of all documentation is produced with Word. Yeah. You may get the suppliers who produce sort of pumps. They may use FrameMaker and just deliver their file component maintenance manuals, that kind of level of documentation, as PDS to the client. But generally, the big companies, you know, the, the corporates just use Word. Yeah, you know, everybody's on and, Word. And they may use things like SharePoint for sort of document management. But for what is quite a sophisticated industry, I'm afraid the documentation is not very sophisticated, you know, in the way it's produced and things like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. I don't know if you read in the Communicator Journal, there was a letter from a chap called Alan. don't know who Alan is. But he, again, he said he's worked in uh, aerospace and oil and gas. And he said he's never used any content management. Everything he's ever produced is on Word. I know, yes. Yeah, and although, you know, you're saying, you know, here I am at oil and gas. I've worked in lots of other industries of aerospace and commercial yeah. vehicle software, etc. And, I, you know, I've used programs like FrameMaker, and the way I've done a lot of my work over the past years is as a contractor freelancer, you know, I've picked up work directly from companies where I put a proposal in and I've gone in and said, wouldn't you be better using FrameMaker? And there's just yeah. no appetite. Yeah, you know? exactly. And in some ways, it's an industry that could improve dramatically in that area with content management systems and they just don't seem to have any. <laughs> there's Not no appetite. Yeah. Not a priority, no. Yeah, it is kind of weird, isn't it? Things are changing. But yeah, I was quite impressed with Alan's letter. So uh, another question then. In this industry, have you been the sole technical author or uh, have you ever worked in teams? Generally, if I've been doing freelance, it's been a sort of I've been by myself. I have worked in teams, you know, when I was a Chevron, I was part of a team. When I was Shell, it was quite a big team. A specialist company provided the services to to shell on a you know quite a long-term contract but generally it's been small numbers you know when I worked at Caverna you know with the subsidy control systems I was really the only technical author but I know they've had technical authors in different kind of numbers over the years there's this sort of culture where most documents are just amended by individuals in the company and it's only when there's a bigger requirement which is too much for the document owner when they start to think about technical authors. But the trouble is, by going that route, things like templates don't happen, consistency, and a technical author hopefully would bring in their own style guide or their own consistency. Yeah. So it's a, it's a bit difficult. <laughs> in some ways, it's an industry ripe for a real shake-up and a modernization of their kind of attitude. But mm-hmm. with oil being where it is at the moment, I think it's kind of running out of time maybe we should take it all into renewables because you know that that could yes. be the next one well yes this is one of the things i was going to ask as well was given the situation at the moment and the emphasis on climate change and using less oil where is the industry going are we gonna need oil and gas much longer well i'm sure we are because i think there's there's too much out there technology wise and just in cars on people's drives ships plowing the seas aeroplanes zooming through the sky to just sort of switch from one to the other i think it's going to be a phased changeover but even you know when we've got more cars on the road that are electricity powered 
people are still going to want to run petrol cars, you know, as vintage yeah. cars, or or that's just because they like an old banger kind of thing. Likewise, you know, there's still gas there. But but the North Sea's changed as well, where the, the companies that were in the North Sea were the, sort of the big household names, BP, Shell, Total, yeah. Exxon, you know, those kind of companies. They've generally gone. And oh. smaller companies have come into the market. Some of them have grown quite big, Creases and Serica Energy, and there are new companies. So what's been happening in the, the oil industry is a bit like in aviation. You know, we've got away from the Air France, the British Airways, the Lufthansa to EasyJet and Ryanair and Wiz and people like that. Yeah. Leaner, smaller companies, less overheads. So that sort of same kind of model has been happening in the oil and gas industries. And I think that's how they go. So the BP of the future will be into solar power and wind farms. And then other companies will be doing the oil. Do we still need oil or gas for industry or plastics? A lot of plastics come through the refining process and are a byproduct of oil. And unless the scientists, people can kind of find a new way of producing a, a substitute for plastic. You know, and, and it's just simple things like the time of Cadam on a road is a byproduct of oil. Oh, but, yeah. You know, you know, so until we can find a substitute for tarmac. We'll still need the. There'll still need that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, so, you know, so I would say that the myth of the oil and gas is a little bit premature. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm sure volumes will change and the supply bases will change as well. Because yeah. just general normal petrol that is used in your car, it's a lot easier to get from other parts of the world. You know, in Saudi Arabia, the Middle East, you can just dig a hole and out comes oil kind of thing. It's a bit <laughs> difficult in the North Sea. But then North Sea oil is of a very high quality and it's used for very specific things. Whilst yeah. oil from other parts of the world is kind of less high quality. But, of course, you know, to get the oil out of the North Sea is a lot more difficult. It's very difficult terrain to try and do the work. So, you know, I, I think it's probably overall got another 100 years in it. Yeah. Chris, what was it like being asked to work on the book? Yeah, it was very interesting. It covers a lot of subjects. Um, I have to say it's a little bit heavy on the sort of geology side of things I think you know and I, I have been saying to OG UK that really they should re-issue it and modernize it sort of saying a little bit more about the generalization of things and talking more about decommissioning because decommissioning is actually providing a lot of work in the North Sea at the moment but and they could you know also put into it renewables wind farms because after all it's Britain's offshore and okay it's oil and gas but that could be the the next thing. Have you enjoyed working in the industry? How did you get into it? Um, I got into it just through a job requirement at the time. I was actually working in the Netherlands and I managed to pick up a, a six-month contract working at Shell in Aberdeen. Came and did that six months. Then I went back to the Netherlands for a year. I worked for a very good sort of small technical documentation company in the Netherlands. They were using FrameMaker. It was quite high tech. They, they had diverse customers. And then I was offered a job back at Shell, ended up staying at Shell for about three years. So that's how I got into it. I would say that, that to anybody out there, I wouldn't be scared of the technology or anything like that. If, you know, if you've got a good technical background in 
engineering, aerospace, you know, you can fit into it. You're not going to be over overwhelmed by it. If you can put up with them not doing everything to ATA 100 and simplifying English and things like that, I think getting in is not really that difficult. Yeah. In the introduction, we told our listeners that you're currently working for Bristow Helicopters. Can you tell us a little bit about what they do and what you're doing in that role? Well, I've been working for Bristow Helicopters for just over a year. That's 15 months now. Bristow Helicopters um, in the UK, and bear in mind that they're actually a, a global operation. The, the company's headquarters is in Houston. provide helicopter services really to three kind of main areas, to offshore, to SAR, search and rescue, and to government oh. services. In the offshore, as I said before, they basically ferry workers to offshore installations, platforms, and back. Yeah. And that they've been providing additional services during these difficult times, ferrying the suspected COVID-19 patients onshore. On the other side, SAR side, Bristow in the UK provide the search and rescue services throughout the UK. They operate from 10 bases around the country. They fly two different types of helicopters, the Sikorsky S-92 and the Leonardo AW-189. There's five bases with the S-92, five bases with the, the AW-189, and they provide all the search and rescue operation. And it's a, a service that is basically subcontracted by the Maritime and Coast Guard Agency, oh. uh, government body. So is, that, is that kind of coastal as well as inland search and rescue? Yep, it, oh. it's, it's, it's all full coverage, mm-hmm. offshore and onshore. And, of course, on, on the helicopters, they have paramedics, you know, the same sort of people as you have in the back of an ambulance. They're in the back of a helicopter. The, the Bristol operation manages that whole service. And, of course, it's got, you know, we've got engineering backup, engineering bases, you know, those engineers at each base. What, what I'm experiencing with them is very different from my initial aerospace experience. You know, I, when I first started off as a technical author, I was working in the aerospace industry producing mm-hmm. aircraft maintenance manuals, spares parts, um, IPCs, industry parts, catalog service bulletins, temporary revisions, and I did that for the likes of British Aerospace and Fokker in the Netherlands, Dornier in Germany. Yeah. But that was all the manufacturing side. Here, it's a completely different kind of area. I see those manuals coming in for the Sikorsky and the Leonardo. None of my work. I'm more involved with the operational side. This is um, the delivery you know, delivering our services. And, and in, on that side, we have to meet the requirements of our regulators, which is the Civil Aviation Authority now. There's certain documents that we have to produce to satisfy them that we're operating things properly. And there's things like flight operations manuals that tell the pilots how to fly the aircraft and operate them. Yes. Um, but there's a whole range of documentation that we're producing base instructions, emergency procedures for bases, you name it, it's, there's all sorts yeah. of things going on. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. We've covered a lot today. That was fascinating. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. I hope it, people will find it interesting. And if I can help anybody with this, any answers, please make contact with me. Yes. You can get in touch with Chris at info at docmates.co.uk and you can find Chris Knowles on LinkedIn.
And for information on the oil and gas industry, a good resource is the website oilandgasuk, all one word, dot co dot uk. Now for things to look forward to next month. The Documation event, based in Paris, France, has moved its conference, normally happening in March, to the 7th to the 9th of September. Also, Nordic Tepcom, based in Copenhagen in Denmark, has moved its conference from March to the 22nd to the 23rd of September. Do check out the websites for these events because they do have some online content and webinars. Tepcom Europe have monthly webinars. On the 25th of March, Matt Reiner will be discussing the pains of creating content. You can find them at technical-communication.org. And of course, TC UK Online is hosting its monthly lunchtime webinars, building on January and February successful simplified technical English presentations. Looking further forward, Adobe have a free online event coming up in April on the 27th to the 29th. You can register online at summit.adobe.com. That's it for this month. Join me again next month when Imogen Craigmile, technical author at Peerbridge, will be telling us about her move from journalism to technical communication in the logistics industry. If you have a question about the podcast, email me at the address istc at istc.org.uk. A new episode of this podcast is released on the last Friday of every month. Don't forget to fill in the ISTC annual survey. Closing date is the 28th of February. Just Google ISTC survey 2021 and go to the survey monkey link. The results of the survey will be coming out in April. I want to thank Chris Knowles for being my interviewee and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe and share. You can find out more about the Institute for Scientific and Technical Communicators at istc.org.uk or just search ISTC on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. See you next month. Goodbye.